Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. Kicked this one off. Got some personal news to share. Not incredibly personal, but it's something that will kind of impact the channel and my podcast in a good way. A couple months ago or so, we started talking about the fact that we wanted to move. We have a spot. I think I've alluded to this before. We don't have any land where we're at. I think we we have our house is on a nice little private drive with only a few houses up here. But we've only got about a third of an acre of land or so around our house. And I've always wanted to get you know some animals, and I've always I've been wanting a goat for quite some time. And one of the bigger issues that's been coming up is my tarantula room is actually kind of small overall. I shouldn't complain because I know there's folks out there that, you know, they're keeping them in closets or they have a certain shelf they can keep them on. So I don't want this to sound like, you know, being a jerk or insensitive to that. I'm very fortunate that I have one. But obviously, a lot of what I do in my free time evolves around Tom's Big Spiders and keeping these species and reporting on the husbandry information. So I, I, I think this kind of serves everybody. I don't know. But my room was isn't particularly large. I remember when I posted up the tour of my collection, a lot of people made the comment, and I remember having people over like, oh, I thought this room would be a, a lot bigger. It's a, it's a decent-sized room, but I, I need a bigger room, and I need a room that is more conducive to what I want to do with the, not only the tarantulas, but I'd like to be able to have the podcast in there. You know, I, I sat down with Billy, and I'm like, here's the deal. We we just picked up a bunch of Xenistus species, and I have Theraphosa species that are starting to get big. I go, we're going to get to a point where the either the spiders are going to start spilling out of the room, or I'm going to need a house with a bigger room so I actually literally started like that and she's like all right well we can start looking because we've been talking about for a while when we picked up this house it was we thought we'd be here for the long run but as you know the family grew a bit and as my hobbies grew a bit and as we realized that not having the land was kind of kind of stunk we started talking about getting a new house so we looked at one the other day and it was just amazing because we walk into the house and we're looking around. It's great. But the big thing is like most people come in, they have a certain number of bedrooms they need. You know, they're looking for a, a bigger kitchen, whatever. We needed a house that not had all these things. We wanted bigger bedrooms for the kids. We wanted a bigger house overall. But we also wanted one that had something that could be used as a tarantula room, whether it be an extra living room or, you know, some of them have just extra offices and it needed to be decent size. So it was kind of, it was tough because we were looking at a couple of them and they just, they'd be beautiful homes. But like, where am I going to put my spiders? If they had a big finished basement, basement, we could have used that. So we walk into this house, we're looking around and I go to peek into the laundry room and I go, does this door go to the basement? And the guy's like, oh no, that goes to the secret room. So I, secret room. All right. I'm intrigued. What do we got? And... We walk up a set of stairs. It's this huge, long room that goes over top of the the garage, which was a large garage to begin with. They never used it for anything. It had it, been freshly painted. Apparently, when he came in to look at the house, the real estate agent, he told him, you're going to have to, there was no carpet. So there's a thin nap carpet in the whole thing. It literally, it's like one of those things where you hear the, ah, like we walk in, I look at Billy and she's like, oh my God, it was the tarantula room. It was the room I had dreamed of. It's big enough that I could have all my spiders in there, get them in the enclosures I've been eyeing for a long, long time and have a setup that I can actually do the podcast from that room so that it's nice and quiet because I alluded to this before, I tend to pause, have to pause every time a car goes by or the dogs start barking or they're, they're going around to, for the podcast and it's kind of makes it take longer than I'd really like. In this case, I'd be in a nice quiet room by myself and be able to get it done at any time, be able to shoot the videos up there. It was just like a revelation. And the rest of the house was gorgeous. I don't want everybody to think I just went up and bought a dump that just had a really nice room, but it's like sometimes things just come together. We had looked at a couple other ones. We looked at one that was very promising, but we got out of there and we're like, all right, there's no tarantula room. That's that's non-negotiable. I need a room to put them in. 
it's going to be amazing. I am so excited about it. I've already been eyeing some more cages and stuff because my goal has always been, like, especially with the husbandry videos, what I have to do is I bring them out and I put them on my dinner table. We set up the cameras and everything. It would be so nice to have a spot where the cameras are set up they remain set up a spot where I could like one of my dreams was to have a situation where when I'm talking about a species we go right up to where the species is on the shelf we talk about we take it down I always wanted like a little portable cart that we could sit there and take the species down and do whatever husbandry we're doing with it feeding rehousing and be able to kind of do it right in the room and it looks like we're going to have this now so I apologize for wasting you know five minutes of the podcast talking about this but it should prove for a much less stressful podcast for me because it's going to be nice and quiet and the videos I'll be able to do stuff that I haven't been able to do before you know obviously if you, if you watch any of my YouTube videos I use a green screen and it's me in front of a photograph of the tarantula room because it was just easier to take a photograph and have it in the background than try to negotiate the cameras in that room with the dogs walking around and everything it just wasn't working so now I'll be able to actually be standing in the room which I'm really excited about so anyway really cool thing very you know beyond stoke we had our little you know, back and forth, we made the offer, they made the offer, and it got a little sketchy there, we were a little worried we weren't going to get it for a bit, but it looks like we got it, and uh, so that'll be coming in the upcoming months, of course, with starting the teacher's job and that, a lot of change, going to be a little stressful, but again, it's all good changes, all things I'm very excited about, and in this situation, it's going to be something I really think that'll allow me to improve the way I do things as far as the tarantula care and stuff. Just looking at shopping for cages. I've been shopping for cages forever. I always try cages, and now I want to get some of these. My One of my big goals was to have like a row of all my Fervictopus species delayed, uh, displayed in giant tanks so that everybody can see them instead of me taking out the Tupperware stuff. You know, my Theraphosa species, now we have Xenthus. It's going to be awesome. So anyway, stay tuned. I'll keep people updated if anybody cares. I apologize. This is two in a row that I've talked about personal stuff. But again, it's, it's A, I just want to throw out there that I've been off from school since March and I've left the home probably about six times total, maybe seven. And three of them were to go look at or four of them were to go look at houses. So it's kind of like I'm, I'm getting my, my I'm, I'm socializing through this, if, if you will. All right, so moving on to one of the main topics today, and it's not going to be a particularly long one because there isn't so much to say about it, but it's come up a couple times recently, and I think it's something that should be addressed because I feel badly when people waste money on things because they think it's the right thing to do, and it should be the right thing to do, but it's not the right thing to do. That's about as convoluted as it gets. But we're going to talk about tarantulas and veterinarians. Now, just uh, just to get this out of the way, because I don't want this to be like Tom Moran on his podcast, just bash veterinarians. We have an amazing vet that we use. We have four dogs. We bring them in consistently. We get them checked out whenever there's an issue. I trust them. They do. They The guy will tell you flat out what he knows. He'll tell you what he doesn't work with. And We've had great luck with them. I've had great luck with other veteran uh, veterinarians. I've also had situations where I've brought animals in back when I was in the snake hobby where we brought an animal in. They say, oh, yeah, we treat snakes. And it was very obvious he knew nothing about snakes, probably knew less about snakes than I did. So there is always that risk because with the exotics, they're new. They're difficult to treat. There isn't a lot of research on them. It's not like we've had, you know, how many uh, probably centuries of time we had to learn about how dogs work and how cats work and their ailments and how to treat them and stuff. There's a lot out there on them. For tarantulas, there is not, unfortunately. So what will end up happening, and this is, I've seen this a couple times in comments on people's videos. I've received it on comments on my videos. Somebody will have a sick tarantula and they'll either put up a video or mention on a board that I have a sick tarantula and somebody will come on and go, well, you should bring it to the veterinarian. 
which is what I was talking about, where it sounds like you're doing the right thing. Because when you have a sick animal, obviously you should want to bring it to the animal doctor to get it checked out and get it fixed. And hopefully the doctor can, you know, figure out what's wrong, diagnose the issue, and whether it be prescribe or do a procedure or whatever it may be, figure out what's wrong with your animal and help it. And again, with the furry animals, that's usually not a big deal. With the arachnids, it can be a big deal. And I've heard some terrible horror stories lately of people bringing them in. Again, we talk about pet stores and how they don't know how to care for tarantulas. And unfortunately, there are some vets out there that they're more, they'd rather take your money and not necessarily do anything for your animal or in some cases do stuff that would harm your animal. And I've had some anecdotes over the years. Now, again, this isn't rampant. And I want to make this clear and I'll make it clear at the beginning of this and at the end when we get, you know, conclude. Check with your veterinarian. Ask questions. Most of them are, are on the up and up. I remember coming into when we were trying to find one for a snake. My snake had a respiratory issue. The first that we went to tried to treat him, and he was like, he, he, you could tell he, would, he was afraid of the snake. He didn't know anything about them. The second one we went to talk to, I said, hey, do you do it? He goes, honestly, I'm not comfortable doing it. I don't know a lot about them. I could look at it and try to figure it out, but I don't know. The third one had actually worked at a zoo before, had had some experience with veterinary medicine with reptiles. So we went with him. And that's kind of what you have to do. You have to ask around and try to find somebody that has an interest and some knowledge in them that may know what they're doing. I was contacted not that long ago by a veterinarian that was talking about some of the things that they were doing in veterinary medicine as far as tarantulas were concerned. And it was how they dealt with, I believe it was an abscess on the tarantula. Now, if your tarantula gets an abscess, a lot of times those can prove to be fatal because what happens is you get the abscess on the outside of the exoskeleton, but it impacts the exoskeleton beneath it. And you'll have a situation where they molt out and it actually ends up killing the tarantula because that hole extends into the new one. And it's, it's a very nasty, nasty situation, a nasty way for a tarantula to go. But they had actually been doing work on tarantulas with abscesses and had some luck with doing actual surgery, kind of a surgery, low-grade surgery. I don't know what the word for it would be. But they would aspirate, they would clean out the inside of the stuff, flush it out, and they had some good luck with the tarantulas molting out and actually healing. So this was a, this was a veterinarian that obviously had some interest in arachnids, had done some experimenting with the arachnids and, and how to treat them, and had some knowledge. So this would be a person that I would have no problem bringing my spider to because in the very least, they have some knowledge of them. So that's a point that I need to make very clear throughout this is that it's it's not I'm not telling people don't bring your tarantulas to the vet. I, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is you want to do some research ahead of time. You want to speak to the vet ahead of time and get them on the phone and find out if they actually know what they're doing. You don't want a situation where you're dropping seventy five hundred hundred and twenty five dollars for a vet to do either nothing or the wrong thing. And this again, I think this one popped up recently because somebody emailed. Well, it was a couple things. I did my podcast on my Ophilipinus female. It passed away after having the sack, and obviously that bothered me a great deal. And I had a couple people that one of them emailed and just basically said, hey, did you ever thought about bringing it to the vet? And then somebody else told me a story how they brought theirs to the vet, and it turned it around now. And this, the, the second case, when they told me what the vet did, and I tried to find this email, but it, it sounds like the spider just turned itself around. What the vet did, I don't see how it would. It was like cleaning out its mouth with salt or some salt water. I, it was weird. But it was one of those deals, I think, what happened was they brought it to the vet, 
and the vet did some stuff to it and suddenly the spider got better so therefore they went oh the vet fixed it kind of like when you when you're sick you're really sick and you get your doctor's appointment and by the time you go to your doctor's appointment you feel better like that type of thing but anyway they seemed convinced the other one was just like i don't understand they weren't in, like it wasn't a, a nasty comment but more like i'm just curious as to why you wouldn't immediately bring your animal to the vet when it's sick and so this will kind of be my explanation for that so Here's the deal. I've had a couple anecdotes. I, I got one the other night where somebody said they had one that had like crusty stuff. It looks like there was an injury to its abdomen. Now, the, if you know about tarantulas, they can bleed out if they don't clot up. The trick is when they get injured and there's a, you know, God forbid, a puncture or something. The abdomen can be a really rough spot. If it's like a leg or something, they can usually close it off to keep the hemolymph or their, you know, technically their blood from leaking out and then bleeding out. But if they get a cut on their abdomen or stuff, like you've heard people using super glue, which can be dangerous because unfortunately the super glue, if you glue it to the exoskeleton that's forming underneath, that can cause problems. Cornstarch is a good way to stop it from bleeding. You put some cornstarch on a wound and it'll help it clot up because the trick is they're not going to heal up and knit up kind of like we do. They a lot of times if they get those injuries, what's going to happen is they're going to have to molt out and repair them for, you know, real when they actually molt. But the big thing is stopping the bleeding. And when they do get like a patch on them, you never usually want to mess with it because you never know what's underneath it. So if they've abraded something, sometimes I saw one instance it was terrible where the person had the heat lamp in with the tarantula and it actually burned itself on the heat lamp. That was pretty nasty. And then it molted out and there was still a big spot with it. I had a tarantula that was basically frozen. It was transported and shipped to me without a heat pack in the winter and I thought it was dead. Well, what happened is the abdomen on it was basically, it came back to life. It was fine. But when it molted the next time, you could see the spot in the abdomen where its abdomen probably started to actually freeze, and there was a big deformity on the abdomen. But for the most case, the trick, there's not much you can do or not much we know you can do with them right now. And when they have a spot on them that's crusty, you don't want to mess with it. You don't want to open it up. You don't want to rub triple. I mean, I wouldn't. People have asked me, just use your rub like, say, triple antibiotic on or antibiotic ointment on it. I, I wouldn't. I don't believe they work that way. Somebody please feel free to correct me, but I just don't see the benefit they would have. It's not like it's going to knit up. It's going to be something they're going to molt out of. So anyway, I just got somebody that contacted me that said they had one that had a basically a kind of a scabbed area on it, and they brought it to the veterinarian, and the veterinarian said that they had worked with tarantulas before, apparently had some experience from a zoo and the veterinarian proceeded to take a q-tip and try to clean off the abdominal area the way the thing is which makes zero sense to me like right there you don't know what's going on because what what have you got to gain by cleaning that off unless they were trying to see what the injury was like underneath but there's really nothing they could have done with the injury anyway so she ended up saying that you know they, they basically took the spider rubbed the thing off, probably did more harm than good, and the spider eventually molted out anyway a couple days later, and it was totally fine, and that ended up costing her $70. So stories like that kind of bother me because this vet didn't do anything. They just basically, it's like if you go to the doctor and you got a boo-boo or something, and they put a little ointment on, give you a Band-Aid and a lollipop and send you off, That it doesn't work that way. The doctor couldn't tell her what was going on. They couldn't tell her, you know, she wasn't able to go, this is an abscess, this is a cyst, this is, you know, where it had braided against something that was in its tank. It was just kind of like, all right, let's play with this with a Q-tip. There you go, give me $70. And that's, unfortunately, a lot of the instances I've spoken, when I've spoken to people about them bringing their tarantulas to the vet, and it happens a lot. And, I mean, again, 
people that get these animals, they love them. They want the best for them. They want them to be healthy. When your animal is sick, again, you bring it to the vet. So they assume that the vet's going to be able to diagnose and do a good job. And it doesn't always come out that way. And I hear a lot of the stories and it just kind of makes me sad because you just wasted a lot of money or in some cases they make things worse. One of the worst instances I ever heard, and obviously this is coming from a keeper who had had basically zero experience. I believe it was rose hair. They had picked it up as an adult. Well, suddenly the rose hair stopped eating. It was basically slowing down a great deal. They said there was a patch on its abdomen that was completely cleaned off of hair and they thought it had like mange or something. And people, everybody listening to this is probably going, oh, you got to be kidding me. But remember, when you get your first tarantula and you haven't done a lot of research, a lot of this stuff looks like the tarantula is in poor health, that it's dying. So her thought was she's, and the other thing I get a lot is when things go into pre-molt, people freak out and they start going, the abdomen shrinking, it's getting skinny, which normally it's not at all. I've seen before and after pictures where the exact same size, but you start to kind of, in your mind, you're freaking out. Your animal isn't eating, must be sick. Oh God, it's losing weight. So obviously with very apparent signs of pre-molt, this person didn't know that, they brought it to the vet. Now, what the vet did was basically gave it, it, it tried to suggest giving it vitamins through a hypodermic syringe without a needle into its mouth parts. It apparently, one of the things, one of the things they said to them is that it looks like it's very slow. It's probably a very old spider and it's on its way out. So if you don't want it to suffer, they could also euthanize it. So the woman's like, no, 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 I don't, it's, she's, I'm still hoping she's going to pull through. So they did the vitamins through the mouth. I guess they gave her a syringe with some type of mixture of something that she was supposed to try to give the spider, which was obviously kind of ridiculous. She brings the spider home. She notices the abdomen spot starts getting even darker. She's like, what is wrong with this thing? Well, we all know how the story ends. It's not going to be a huge twist. The spider molted. It was it was pre-molt. It was basic pre-molt. This vet charged her, it was like 125 bucks because she said to get the vitamins and everything else to treat a spider that wasn't even sick that anybody that had a cursory knowledge of arachnids and tarantulas should have immediately recognized as pre-molt. Now, my thing is if I'm a veterinarian and I'm working on animals, I'm not going to pretend I know what I'm doing with an animal that I have no experience with. In the very least, I like the ones that will say, and I've heard this before, and I like this attitude. They're like, listen, I, I'm not familiar with him, but I'm happy to do some research, do some reading. Somebody told me a story where they brought him in to the vet. The vet didn't know anything, but she knew another vet that had worked with them. They put some calls out, and from what I gathered of it, they, they got some good information, and whatever the ailment was, was with the tarantula, it improved. But this was a vet that made it very clear right off the bat, listen, I'm not familiar with working with these animals, but I'm happy to try to help in any way I can and use the resources I ha have to help your animal. That's probably the best case scenario you can hope for. There are obviously, I've spoken to some over the years that have done research in arachnids that want to improve arachnid medicine. There was somebody that contacted me. If you're out there, please let me know because I lost the email. I cannot find it. But she was working on specifically, she wanted to focus on arachnid medicine. And they were really working hard on doing like her whole, I don't know what it, with the college's master's project, her whole dissertation or whatever she was doing, some type of research project on arachnid and tarantula medicine. And we need more people like that. And she was explaining to me that it was starting to become, because the hobby was exploding to the point where a lot more people were getting tarantulas and they were seeing a lot more tarantulas brought in. So many of them were, were finally recognizing the need for 
more information about arachnoid arachnid medicine. And I believe this was in uh, it was in the UK. It wasn't in the United States. It was in the UK because I remember being like this is great, and then realizing she wasn't from you know the United States. But it was still nice to hear that people were taking it seriously. The vets were taking it seriously, and they were. It wasn't. As she explained to me, there are vets out there that don't like somebody coming in with an animal that they have no knowledge of. They, 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 it bothers them. And then recognizing, again, when you get one tarantula a year, it's probably like, whatever. I, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this. But she said they were starting to get more and more. It was becoming more of a common occurrence that somebody would come in with some type of invert that they didn't know what was wrong with it. And they really wanted to work on that. So that's what we need more of. And I'm hoping when this podcast goes out, if, if anybody out there is in the veterinary field would like to chime in about their experience experiences with them. I would love to do an update on this. I don't, this is something it's, I went through my emails, looked up veterinarian, trying to find some of the people and the stories and stuff. And it was hard getting a hold of them and, and figuring out where they were. So if this would be one, I would love people to share and let me know, you know, what, what have your experiences been with veterinarians? What have you found? Have you found certain ones that work well with arachnids and tarantulas and know what they're doing? Let's get the word out there. Let's, let's, you know, hopefully throw these people some support and get more veterinarians interested in it. But I would love to hear your stories because my take on it right now is if I had a tarantula that I was going to try to bring to the vet and the thought has crossed my mind, but mine has said flat out, he has no experience. He goes, I'll I'll be happy to take a look at it, but I'm not sure what I would do. My take at the moment is that in the majority of instances, it's not going to be appropriate. It's not going to be something they're not going to know what to do with it. However, that doesn't mean you shouldn't check around. So my my advice would be, if you have a tarantula that, that's sick and you really want to get it to see a professional, do some calling around first. Find somebody that seems to know what they're talking about. And again, obviously, I've already shared an anecdote where they're like, oh, yeah, we've worked with tarantulas before. And the person obviously didn't know what they were doing. But it doesn't hurt to call up and say, what have you seen? What type of thing? I would, I would ask, you know, again, I don't know. Some of these guys are very busy, but I would ask things like, what what type of injuries have you treated before successfully? What do you, you know, throw some things out there, throw out impaction, throw out DKS, see if they've heard any of these terms. They probably won't, but it might, maybe somebody goes, oh yeah, I've heard of that. We had somebody bring it in. That might help. Hopefully you're one of the people that's fortunate enough to find somebody nearby that has taken an interest in or a tarantula medicine and that does know how to treat some things. It would be nice to have people out there so we can pick their brains so we as keepers know some things to do because obviously... If my dog has something wrong with it, Billy and I can shoot a text out to our vet and he'll ask some questions and be like, all right, this is what I think you should do now before you bring them in. Wouldn't it be great to be able to do that with tarantulas? Listen, I'm noticing they're hanging around the water bowl. I'm noticing that it's come out of its burrow. You know, we were talking about the tarantulas that might get a bacterial infection a couple podcasts ago. Wouldn't it be great if we could go, hey, my tarantula is outside of its burrow and it's not acting normal normally and it's hovering over the water dish. Okay, bring it in. I know exactly what to give it. We can give it something that's, you know, there's probably something that could be administered to them that would help them in this situation. We just don't have any knowledge of it right now. So then I guess, you know, thinking about this on the flip side, it's kind of a dual-edged sword because on one hand, you don't want to go, you don't want to have people wasting their money if they're not going to be able to help it, or in the worst case scenario, doing something that's actually going to harm the tarantula. But on the other hand, if we don't bring them in and try to ask for you know help with our tarantulas, there's never going to be a perceived need for veterinary medicine in that area. Because one of the things that was coming up with talking to the veterinarian in the UK was obviously the fact that they were noticing a need for it. More people were bringing them in. So it's tough. But I do think asking around at least puts that on their radar and possibly saves you some money if they don't know what they're doing. Because, hey, somebody called about a tarantula today. And hopefully, if enough people call or start bringing things in, then they'll recognize that this is going to be an area that they're going to need to look into. Now, again, 
I couldn't even begin to tell you what arachnoid medicine would look like. Arachnid medicine would look like there, but I do firmly believe there have to there has to be some ways to diagnose some of the common ailments we see in these guys and be able to treat them, whether it be a bacterial infection, whether it be like the veterinarian that was doing the work with cysts. Impaction would be amazing if they could figure out a way to treat impaction. Again, it's tough to figure out what's going on until it's too late, but that would be something where if we'd have some help on, I'm guessing they could probably. A good veterinarian with some research and some experimentation could probably figure out some ways to help our animals, at least with some of the more common ailments that we have. Maybe even with mites and stuff, when people get mites or something, or nematodes, the big boogeyman of the hobby. Wouldn't it be nice? I did hear of an instance of vets trying to treat with nematodes and some having some success with it. That would be huge. Those would be things that would, I think, set a lot of our minds at ease, knowing that we have an alternative when our animal is sick or not acting right or has had a you know an accident. We have something we can do with it to help it because I think a lot of them, we do treat them like our pets. We want the best for them. It's not, oh, well, my little spider's sick, but it's a bug anyway. No, we don't look at them that way. So it would be nice if we had that alternative to be able to bring them to a veterinarian. So I guess the moral of the story is be careful when you bring them in. Make sure your vet knows what they're talking about. Ask around. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't assume they know. If they say they have experience with tarantulas, try to tactfully throw out some like, oh, so like, what have you treated? What type, like, try to get some information because unfortunately there are people out there that will just quickly take your money and not really do anything for your animal and we don't want that. But we do need to get word out that we do need some people to specialize or at least give some thought to treating tarantulas and treating them correctly and trying to amass some type of knowledge around their care. That would be amazing. So that's my two cents on the veterinary thing. Please, this is one that's, again, I don't have all the answers for. This is my this is the opinion that I've got over the years of just hearing stories and whatnot. And again, I do think we need their help. I just think we have to be careful for how we spend our money and, and how we do it. But please, if you know vets that work on them or if you have stories where they've successfully worked on your tarantula, please feel free to chime in. That's great information for people. And again, I would love to revisit this with some examples of good veterinary medicine. That would be my my overall outcome is not to sit there and go, all right, don't bring your tarantula to the vet. The outcome is to get the conversation going and get us as a hobby more active in trying to make sure that we can get good vets because that's something that hopefully as the hobby continues to grow and I'll tell you even just in the amount of time I've been in it to see how many more people are buying these guys now it's it's been amazing but now the next step is to kind of get acceptance with the veterinary community and recognize that there's going to be a need there let's let's figure it out so please chime in I'm hoping people have good stories for me I would love to hear them I would love to share them in the next podcast that make it a little more positive so feel free email me drop a line on Facebook and let's get the discussion going on veterinarian medicine as far as it pertains to tarantulas. All right, for the next topic, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about enclosure sizes. Now, I've covered this topic in a different format before, talking about, you know, slings and such. And in my videos, my husband videos, I always put suggestions of sizes to use for tarantula cages, but they are just that, they're suggestions. And I do get the psychology beyond the fact that, unfortunately, some people do see me as some type of expert, which I try to explain that I'm not, I, I share... I have a lot of experience with them. I like to think that I'm observant. I like to think that I pick up some things that maybe people don't. I like to share my information because I have this thing where I enjoy teaching, but I hate using the expert label because I just don't think it's correct. It's not, I have no PhD in this. I have not, you know, there's been no formal training. There's no, I still have a ton to learn. I'm still learning. You guys hear it more so with the podcast because you get to hear me work through things. But it's always going to be something that I'm learning. I just try to share for people that maybe, you know, things that I've seen so that other people might benefit from my experiences. 
So when I say enclosure sizes, these are not set in stone rules. This isn't a gold standard. And unfortunately, when I, when everybody, when I put something up in a video, there are certain, some people will be like, oh, great, good springboard. You gave me some ideas. That's what it's for. The idea is to go, all right, for somebody that has never kept a spider before, sure, I'm going to give you something you could use that would work great for you. But it's not the be all end all. I'll have people that will freak out because I say, all right, I put these guys in an extra large critter keeper. And they're like, I have something that's like an extra large critter keeper. It's just slightly bigger. Will that be okay? And that's where it's like, I feel like they're stuck on the fact that I said I use a critter keeper. So they have to use a critter keeper and that's not the case at all. And that's one of the reasons why in my videos, a lot of times I will give some examples of sizes of things I might use. I will show some of the things I have used, but that's not to say you have to use these. It's more like, here's kind of an idea of all the things I've used over the years for spiders, you know, this species that's about this size. That's the idea behind it. But again, people get hung up on that. And what I've been getting a lot of, it's one of the most common questions I get asked is what size enclosure to use for a species, blah, 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 that's about this big. And I try to answer them best I can, but it can be very difficult and sometimes, you know, tiresome to, to go over it because I'll get people that really freak out if I can't give them the exact link to something. And I'll go, all right, well, it should be about a gallon. You know, you want a little bit of floor space. Well, I don't know. Can you give me a link to that? Here's the deal with enclosures. And I think anybody that's been in the hobby for a while picks up on this. It, and it goes along with the whole rehousing thing. The other question I get quite a bit is when is time to rehouse? It's not an exact science. It's it's an art. <laughs> it's it's something you it's it's a lot influenced by personal aesthetic, by just experience. I think when you first get into the hobby, and I remember this. I the good thing is I can, and I think it allows me to kind of understand where some of these questions come from from beginners because I can put myself I remember what it was like I can still remember sitting there looking at my LP and it's a little Jamie's tarantula enclosure a little sling like all right is, is, should I rehouse it now can I leave it in there for another molt what do I do and you're like panicking about it because like th this is a, a big part of the care I got to make sure it's got the correct home and then the more you keep them it's like eh, yeah I'll get that next time yep this one's got another molt now and oh this one's a little big surprise we'll get it in something and you don't panic at all and then you go into your garage and you go through like if you're like me you've got a million different old enclosures in there different styles you've tried over the years different things you've you know you thought were great one year and the next year you decide I don't like this anymore I'm moving on to something else and you have you grab one of those up and you go all right it's not perfect but it'll do for the time being and you put the tarantula in there's not an exact science to choosing enclosure size and there's not an exact science to knowing when to rehouse it's very difficult it can be very difficult for me sometimes because I'll get a picture of a spider in an enclosure that I can't really make out the dimensions I, I'll get something that'll be like, hey, Tom, this spider is like three to four inches. And it's, well, depending on the species, depending on which instar it's on. So, for example, a we'll go for myctopus species. They go through this one molt where they put on massive size. So they go from all of a sudden being like a cute little juvenile to boom, you have a big hairy spider there. And that molt can make or break your cage is in terms of like one minute, it seems to be just a bit cramped, but we got another molt. Next minute, it's holy crud, I got to get this thing out of here. My Xenthus species just molted. I put it, I did the one I Iria's the Amanus. I put her in this little enclosure. It was the perfect size. She's molted twice. It's, she's getting rehoused later today. So it depends on the species. There's so many different factors when trying to figure out when to rehouse. So as much as I would love, I've had people going, can you do a rehouse guide? And I have started on a guide on 
a while back ago started on a guide on how to rehouse. But then my big worry is, and this is where I give, you know, I think sometimes I give too much thought to the stuff I produce. Somebody's going to, I'm going to come up there with my just general guidelines. All right, let's take this sling. This sling's this big. It's an Afana Pelma, so it's not going to grow very quickly. As a matter of fact, you probably want to put it in your will for your grandkids. It's going to grow that slowly. So we don't have to worry about moving that one until it hits this point. What's going to happen is I'm going to be speaking and what people are going to take is absolute. So they're going to go, oh, I have to do the exact same thing. And that doesn't help anybody. What I've been trying to do is show that there's it's it's not an exact science. You don't need to stress over it. There are some basic things, uh, numbers and sizes we throw around. And I'm going to apologize to the folks that are listening that use the metric system because although I am getting better with picturing the metric system, that's going to be the one big thing. The biggest thing I ever learned coming out of this hobby is going to be how to visualize the metric system because when you grow up using you know inches and feet and everything else and somebody throws out centimeters – I don't visualize it. Now I'm starting to visualize. Like I can picture, I was, I was emailing somebody the other day. I was so excited because they asked me a question about size. And I was busting out the, the centimeters and inches, but I'm not going to be able to do it with this when we're talking about volume. So I just want to apologize ahead of time that I'm not going to have, you know, liters and stuff. We're going to be talking about gallons and things like that and ounces. Anyway, we have some basic sizes we use for our slings. So we talk about with the little teeny baby slings you're talking about a five ounce deli cup. Uh, the two people use the 2.2 ounce ones, the two ounce ones, I believe the little souffle cups. I've used them. They work well. Just know that if you ventilate them well, they dry out very, very, very quickly. So that's something to be concerned with. If you put a sling in there and you're not being extra diligent and keeping them moist, that can be an issue. So I just want to put that warning out there. But in the U S it's like the five ounce deli cups for the small ones or the dram bottles. Now they come at dram vials. They come in a bunch of different sizes and I just had somebody email me and ask me the exact size to use. I don't know the measurements. What I'll do is I'll go into my transfer room. I'll throw a tape measure on it and go, all right, this one's, you know, circumference or diameter of one inch and about an inch and a half tall. So there's different sizes. And I get how that can be confusing. But the trick is you get a few of them. Go on Amazon, buy a few of them, and you'll see they're coming to pick a size. If you've got a tiny sling, use a smaller one. If you have a bigger sling, you can use a bigger one. But we have those as kind of a general ballpark, you know, if you have a really tiny sling, you can put them in these. Now, I've had people go, all right, well, I have a spice container. that, And they have to be clean ones. Don't get ones that have spice in it. You can still smell the, smell the spice in it. But you can buy like Amazon. You can buy the little spice containers. Will that work? Yeah, if it's about the same size, it'll work fine. Use those dram bottles. Use those as a suggestion, as a guideline. There are other things out there you can buy. Very, very nice looking things. Clear ones. I've had people use a little makeup case. A lot of different things you can use. These are guidelines. These are to give you kind of a ballpark. This is what what size I'm looking at. Then we get into the 16 and 32 ounce deli cups. Those are the standard for like your normal, you know, three quarter inch sling would go into a 16 ounce deli cup. And then your arboreal would go into a 32 ounce deli cup. And I'll have people that like, well, what if I don't want to use a deli cup? What if I can find something that's around that size that's nicer? Use it. It's seriously. That's they're there for guidelines. They're there for just kind of giving people an idea of what size look to look for. Because again, there are so many different species, so many different growth rates, so many different little like some I've had some burrowing species or fossorial species that I want to put into a 32 ounce because it gives them more room to dig. I have other fossorial species that they would get lost at the bottom of it. So for example, my P. Muticus, I put the little slings, little three quarter inch slings into a big 32 ounce deli cup full of dirt. They went all the way down to the bottom, closed themselves off and and didn't eat. And that's a problem. So it depends on the, the spider. You have to be ready to kind of juke and jive and come up with something that works for you. Next step up, it gets a little, when you get the juvenile, 
it's hard to come up with what the exact, because it depends on the species. Again, this is why it's not an exact science. I'll have people come up and go, I have a juvenile spider. What size should I put in? Well, what juvenile is it? Because I'll tell you, my juvenile T. blondi is going to get something a heck of a lot bigger than, say, my juvenile Afonopelma calcotis. And once again, it, there's no standard. It's, it's tough to give a standard for anything because there's too many variables. What we can is we come up with little, you know, containers that everybody kind of has access to that give you a ballpark. So a juvenile, for example, I have enclosures that are about six inches by four inches by five inches that I use for some juveniles. Right now, I have my juvenile T. blondie in something that would be I would normally use for a large tarantula. It's, it's about 14 inches by 12 inches across because they grow a lot more quickly. With the Xenthus species, I keep bringing these up, but again, there's, I'm excited about it because I'm learning a new spider, a new genus. I put those guys originally, I put them in smaller enclosures, realized right off the bat after a molt that I had miscalculated, they need bigger enclosures. So with the next batch, I, well, the first one I did this with, the Amanis, and then when I got my next batch of them, those all went into much bigger enclosures, and I'm still not sure I got it right because I had one of them molt twice already, and it looks like it's too big for it. So there's, you have to, when you go into enclosures, take whatever anybody says. Now, if you see something, I, I know some people will come out and they'll go, you know what, I have a three-inch P. Metallica. And they'll come on to one of my videos and go, ooh, I really like what you put your three-inch P. Metallica in. I'm going to use that. I totally get that. That's easy. That's just taking the guesswork out of it. Hey, Tom Moran does it. It works for him. I'm going to use it for me. When we get into problems is when people obsess over the size of the enclosure to a point where they're putting so much thought into it, they're kind of work themselves into a, you know, a state of just stupor where they can't make any decisions. So I've had people like come up and be like, all right, well, I have this enclosure here, this enclosure here, and this enclosure here. Which one would you think would be the best? And there'll be like a Jamie's enclosure, uh, a big tank and uh, like a glass tank. And I don't know, some other, we'll say actual Terra Nano, a big one. And I'll give my opinion. I'll go, well, this one, all three of them could work. It depends on how you set them up. Yeah, but which one would be the right one? Well, there is no right one. It's how you set it up. It's it's the size of the spider. It's whether or not you want to rehouse again. I've had situations where people have been like, I have a Lazidora Parahibana. She's about three inches. I want to put her in an Exoterra Nano, the 12 by 12 by 12. Is that an appropriate enclosure? And my answer would be, yeah, for a spider that size would be an appropriate enclosure, but she's going to eventually outgrow it. And then they freak out. Well, I want this to be a permanent enclosure. Well, then you might want to either put her in something in the interim or you might want to get her something bigger. It doesn't, it's not an exact science. And if you're treating it like it's an exact science, then you're going to make more. And this is what everything I do is about is trying to take away some of that stress of keeping these animals. You're going to be basically creating more stress for yourself. Don't stress out. If you had no guidelines, look at the spider. You want to give it some room. Use common sense. Now, with slings, slings are a little different. And this is where I think people get hung up because you want to be, in my opinion, I've, I, again, I have people contact me that drop slings and I'm getting a lot of these lately. And unfortunately, I think in most instances, it's not, hey, I want to give my spider like a free range. It's more, I picked up a, a old world species that I'm a little afraid of and I don't ever want to rehouse it. And again, I will say this a million times. If you're, if you pick up a sling, an old world sling, and you put it in an adult enclosure because you're afraid to rehouse it, you're not ready for the sling. That would be my honest assessment. It doesn't mean you don't want to... I think it's a good idea to reduce the number of moves, but for a sling, get it into a smaller enclosure. And I've talked about this before. I like to put my slings in smaller enclosures so I can keep track of them. It's it's very easy to lose tiny slings in larger enclosures. It's harder for you to tell when they're molting. It's harder for you to tell when the conditions aren't right. It's harder for you to tell when they eat, and that just leads to more stress. So I do think with slings, yes, keep things small. Teeny tiny slings... Five ounce deli cup, 
Dram bottle, boom, easy, no problem whatsoever. A little larger sling, break out something around the 16-ounce size. And then once they put on some size, have fun with it. I've been starting to drop juveniles in larger enclosures now. And it's not because I'm afraid of rehousing, because honestly, if anybody's watched my YouTube channel, it's all I do. So I love rehousings, but it's come down to the fact that I'm starting, have, have having years of doing this and recognizing when one's getting that size, that magic size where I think it needs a rehouse. I'm starting to recognize that once they put on enough size and they're healthy enough, some of these guys, you put a three-inch one in a like almost an adult enclosure, they, they run with it. They love it. I have some that go around. They're digging tunnels all over the place. They're active. We're going with it. But does that mean it's wrong for somebody to take their juvenile and put it in something smaller? Absolutely not. If you want to keep track of it for a while, perfectly fine. I've seen people that put, for example, I, I have my LP, my LP female who molted who's between, I don't know, her molt was eight inches, eight and a quarter inches. So I'm guessing she's pushing around nine inches or so. But right now I have her in a 10-gallon Lorex plastic acrylic enclosure. As far as I'm concerned, plenty of room. She's sticking to mostly one side. She looks good in it. It doesn't look too cramped. But I had somebody email, they saw the rehousing video, and they're like, listen, I have an LP about the same size. I kind of wanted to put her into a 20-gallon long. Is that okay? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And it's perfectly fine. More space, who cares? I said, just make sure that you fill it with enough substrate so that if she does some climbing, she doesn't fall. I mean, I know it's a long enclosure, but if it's 12 inches tall, you want to put some dirt in there. But yeah, there's nothing wrong with that size. You don't have to do exactly what I do. And who knows? Down the road, I may want to put mine into something bigger. Right now, I'm looking at my Sturmies. I mean, my T-Blondies. They're getting, they're putting on some decent size. I think one of them's about six inches now. Next mold, she'll be pushing. She'll be a big girl. And I want to get them into something. So I'm eyeing, do I want a 15-gallon? I'm going to potentially, this is nice because, again, going back to the beginning of the podcast with this new room, these are the guys I want to display and I want to get them in something big. I can, I have a lot of play. So you can keep them in something smaller. Can they do well? Yes, because if you watch these guys, a lot of them will just sit in one spot anyway. Spiders are not overly active animals. They're masters at conserving their energy. They're ambush predators. They don't go out like a huntsman spider and go running all over the terrain trying to find prey. They sit in one spot, wait for something to show up to them and eat it. So giving them a super large enclosure is aesthetically pleasing and you may have a spider that like again I've the ones I put in larger enclosures I have had some instances where they'll make a burrow on one side next thing you know what they find another corner they like a burrow in so they do some playing around but it's not necessary to give them that much room in some instances it's a matter of taste it's a matter of what you think you want to do with your enclosure what you find aesthetically pleasing if you want to give them extra room give them extra room that's where it gets I think the the trickiest thing is with the adults trying to figure out the sizes and this is where I get tripped up sometimes is people come like I have a six inch you know Acanthoscuria geniculata what do I put it in or the big one I have a I don't know we'll go Kilobrachy species adult what's a good nice enclosure that I can put them in I can get there's it's difficult sometimes to find stuff that's appropriate that's aesthetically pleasing that's you know pleasing to the eye when you bring somebody into your room and that's also appropriate for the spider it can be tricky, but there's no, that's part of the fun if you see it that way. If you're somebody that likes hard rules, this can be a, a, a frustrating hobby at times because there's no real hard rules in terms of enclosures. There's no, uh, as much as people ask me, please do a list of standardized cages. There aren't any, and I never want to do that. I never want to put anything out there that could be seen as this is Tom saying these are the absolute cage sizes for these specimens or these species. No, that's not what it's about. It's about giving ballpark figures and figuring your way through it. So when do you rehouse? It's something you develop with time. Again, I, I will, if you watch my videos, 
it gives you a pretty good idea. And I'm not, this isn't a plug for my videos, but just saying, if you watch my videos, you can get a pretty good idea of what I use to gauge when something needs to be rehoused. There are ones that I screw up. I've dropped the ball on. There's, I did a piece of Letharia one not that long ago that the pokey went from like, it was one of those ones where it made a big jump and the enclosure went from being slightly tight to obscenely tight. And I felt terribly, terrible about it. So we got it into a new enclosure I'm not perfect. A lot of it's eyeballing it. And so it can be very tough when I struggle with it with my own collection, trying to figure out, and again, I have a decent amount of experience rehousing. I can struggle with trying to figure out, do I rehouse this one now? What do I put in? Uh, there are moments I have a garage. I should flash up a picture, except it's, it's a dump right now. But before we move, I should show how many different types of old enclosures I have in my garage. And sometimes it's like I have a Teocrity, for example, right now. My Teocrity just had that molt where it went from the little... I had an AMAC box. It's a little 4x4x5 four by four by one. And it went from that point where the AMAC box was a little small for it to now it's small for it. And so I'm in my garage and I'm looking around and I'm like, all right, what am I going to use here? I want something that offers a little height because my Ocrates I've discovered are a little more, they have those uh, semi-arboreal tendencies. So we want to give it some height. They're also very skittish. So again, you want to give them some space. What do I put them in? So I'm in my garage. I'm picking up I got some old uh, Sterilite. I got an old arboreal enclosure that I had made that I think is too abor too high for it. It doesn't really need a full arboreal. I have a Critter Keeper. That's part of the fun of the hobby. I mean, for me, it's like sitting there trying to figure out, will this work? Will this work? That's something you need to get used to. So if you're the type of person that wants hard, like you want directions, you want your the definitive, this is exactly what you do, you're not going to find it. And you don't want to find it because I think for many of us, the whole enclosure thing becomes a huge part of the hobby, becomes a fun part of the hobby. It's not anything to stress over. Worst case scenario, worst case scenario, either way, we'll go either, either way. You end up with a spider that's a little bit cramped, which sadly, you know, not sadly, but fortunately, they do well in those environments usually. I mean, I think most people can tell when a spider is in an enclosure that's way too small. It becomes, when it's, when it's to the point where the spider takes up almost the whole enclosure, you got a problem, you got to move it. And I think most people are good at that. Now, you can move it into something that's too small, worst case scenario, and you look back and go, oh, I should have put it in something bigger. You can rehouse it again. I know we don't want to upset them. We don't. We want to avoid you know, causing them undue stress, but there's nothing wrong. And I've done it. I just did it recently where I rehoused. It was an embrobustum. I put her in something and realized she was absolutely swimming in it. She had buried all the way down to the bottom. It was too large. And I took her out and put her in something else that was a little smaller so I could make sure that she wouldn't bury herself and not be able to find prey. On the flip side, I rehoused a couple of my Xenthus species, realized immediately that what I put them in after they molted was going to be way too small. So next day, just took and moved a couple of them into something a little bit larger. So worst case scenario, you put it in something a little bit small, the spider's still going to be okay. What you may run into, and this is something to think about, is so if we're talking about old world species, if I put an old world tarantula into something that's a little bit small and it's a heavy weber, now I've just created the old jack-in-a-box effect where I'm going to pull the top off that enclosure. There's not going to be enough space for that spider to feel secure, and now I've created a defensive spider. That's something to think about. So you want to always err on the side of caution, put them something in, a, in something a little bit larger larger if possible but for most instances it's not going to make a big deal either way if the cage is a little big and it's something that's i would say above a juvenile i wouldn't i i honestly wouldn't mess around with the slings that much i i don't believe in putting slings in huge enclosures i've made that clear again if you do it i can't say it's wrong it's just not what i prefer and it's something i feel like for most people it's better that you're able to keep an eye on them anything else juvenile something that's well established they'll usually do for most species they'll do quite fine even if you put them in something a little large, put them in something a little small, again, they're going to eat. 
If you have a water dish on there, they're going to drink. What you may have is a situation where they can't burrow deep enough. And then you may have a spider that webs up. And then we get into that defensiveness I mentioned a second ago. But for the most part, you're not, there's no right or wrong answer. You can rehouse. That's, a, that's the thing I've gotten from people before. And I, I know I probably go against what some people say because it's like, all right, you rehouse them. You, it's, it's disruptive. It's stressful for the tarantula. You don't want to do it again very soon. But if you move a tarantula into an enclosure that you start to suspect is not the right enclosure or that you need to maybe make some changes to it, do it. Do it earlier than later, sooner than later. They're very, they're very adaptable. I've had, you know, tarantulas that I have rehoused. We've had a kind of stressful rehousing. I, I put them in the new enclosure. They're all jacked up. I drop a cricket in. They start eating. They completely forget about it. They don't have particularly long memories when it comes to that. Now, some will cling to the side. They'll be in the stress pose. Don't get me wrong. I have seen other instances where you rehouse them and they get stressed out. But they're not going to like, it's not going to get to the level of stress like humans do where they're going to need to talk to somebody about it or get medication. They calm down eventually. So if you're a little, I'm going to buck common tradition here. If you get in a situation where you think you messed up and put it in something that was either too big, too small, too shallow, too tall, whatever it may be, Next day, go ahead and rehouse it and get into something appropriate. Just try not to do it. You know, you don't want it to be a serial thing where it's like, oh, and I don't like that one either. But rehousing a couple times in a week isn't going to hurt. I've done it before. There you go. My tarantulas are perfectly fine. The two Xenthus species that I rehoused into the larger enclosures ate immediately. There were no issues. Again, they've been shipped, housed, rehoused. So a lot of commotion, a lot of stress. They ate fine. They're eating fine. They're doing great. They settled in perfectly. Don't be afraid to experiment. Know that there aren't any hard set rules as to when to rehouse your spiders. It is something that comes down to personal tastes in many respects. Like you talked to, like if you took five different keepers, took a species we all keep and said, when's the point you rehouse and what you put them into, you're likely to get five different answers. They may be in the same ballpark, but you're going to get very different answers. One might say, I usually wait till they get to two inches, I move them. I might say, I wait till they get to three inches and move them. It's not an exact science. As long as you're getting fed and cared for properly, as long as you don't leave them, if they get in a tiny enclosure, you know, you don't want to cram them in. I've seen some situations where I'm watching YouTubers and sometimes they come on and they go, listen, I, I need to rehouse this one. It's going to get rehoused soon. Totally cool. We've all been there. But the other ones you get, we realize that their entire collection is housed in teeny tiny enclosures just so they can have more room to keep spiders. That's not cool. But as long as you're not keeping it in something that's like that for the long run, that you're cognizant of the fact that, all right, you know, it's a little cramped, I need to get a larger enclosure, then it's not a big deal. It's not something you need to stress about. There's enough things to stress about in the hobby with pre-molts and, you know, the various ailments that go around whatnot. You don't want to be stressing over enclosure sizes. And then understand that if you contact me, and I don't give you a specific answer about an exact size, that's because I'm giving you a suggestion and you're going to have to take it and run with it. And again, I get with the adults, it gets tricky because I'll tell you, I'm in the constant lookout for appropriate adult enclosures for some of my guys. It's like the, you get the Exoterra ones, the 12 by 12 by 12 that don't offer a lot of substrate depth. And they're not, they're great for some species because you kind of slant the substrate to give them a little more depth in the back, but they're not great for others. And then when you get in the really big ones, it's tough finding bigger enclosures. I don't use glass because I like to take cages off of, I think I've explained this a million times probably, but I like to take the cages off the shelves when I care for them. Even when I get this new tarantula room, I'm going to have this big cart. I'm going to move around so I can take the enclosure off the shelf, open it up, clean the water dish, do all this stuff. I like moving them. And those big glass enclosures can be quite heavy when they're all filled with dirt. So I, I but those can work. 
it's it's again it's tricky but it's part of, i i keep coming back to this it's it's part of the fun at least for me i get i get the fact that some people are stressed out by it but it's don't let it stress you out feel free to reach out i mean obviously and there's places and be careful what you post up but like arachna boards or facebook groups people will be very <laughs> People will love to tell you what size and closure you should be using. So if you want to post something up like, all right, here's what I'm thinking of doing, people will usually chime in with good information about, hey, that one doesn't offer enough ventilation. Hey, that one might be a little bit tight. Hey, I had somebody contact me the other day. And again, it was, I believe it was the the 12 by 12. It's been in my brain because I just ordered a couple of them. But the 12 by 12 by 12 cubes. And they're like, I want to put my Theraphosa species in. I'm like, how big is your Theraphosa species? They're like, five inches. I'm like, two molts, it's going to outgrow it. So there are some spots where having the experience, you can go, that won't work. But don't stress over it. Seriously, there's too much in life now to stress about than to be worrying about what size. And I I get it. I do it myself. But there's, it's not something to lose sleep over. If you think, use your instincts. You start to develop them pretty well. And I'm... And, Feel free to chime in. Again, I love the Facebook comments because I think people go through those comments and it helps them. You're not just hearing it from me. It should never just be from me. This is my opinion. The podcast represents my opinion, my experiences. There are other people that have different opinions, different experiences. But in this instance, let people know. You know, Talk a little bit about what you've done. We can revisit this one as well because I think this is something that people need to hear from other people. But talk about that point where you start to recognize, all right, I'm getting the hang of it now. And I think for a lot of us, you feel like you're getting the hang of it and then you keep a new species that throws you for a loop and you realize, "Uh uh-oh, probably should have rehoused this one last time. We all go through it. It's nothing to stress over. The tarantula is going to be just fine as long as you're not keeping them in, you know, little slings and sprawling enclosures or big adults and tiny little cramplins where there's no room to move and where you create a situation where you get a defensive T. It's all good. Don't let it become another cause of stress. And don't get upset with me if you contact me and I won't give you a specific example. Part of this came from recently, just full disclosure, I had somebody email me and got a little frustrated because they're like, no, I want an exact enclosure size. And I'm like, I can't give you an exact enclosure size. And it got me thinking about this. So it'll be, again, with the podcast, they're wonderful because I feel like I'm chatting with people even though nobody's talking to me. I can kind of picture you all out there. But it also allows me to create kind of a long version of some of the answers I would give when people ask me these questions, which has been great. So anyway, that's my input on the veterinarian thing. Do some research for us before you go and don't waste your money. I'm not saying completely abandon them. I think there needs to be awareness that we have a hobby that we love. We have animals that we love and there's a need for treatment for them and for people to be able to diagnose and correctly treat our animals. And if anybody out there has had some positive experiences with veterinarians or anybody is a veterinarian that has some experience, I'd love to talk to you. It'd be neat, maybe something to do a podcast on the future, interview somebody that knows about tarantula medicine or that could tell us about the state of tarantula medicine in the veterinarian community. I would love to hear from you. Please chime in because I think these things, you know, it's one thing for me to get on and ramble on for 50 minutes about these topics. And again, it represents my opinion and my experiences, but it's another thing to hear from other people and hear what they've experienced of what they, you know, good or bad, what, what you've encountered as far as these are concerned, I think that's much more powerful. So please feel free to chime in. That'll do it for this one. As always, you can find me on Tom's Big Spiders, the website. You can find me on Tom's or Tom'sBigSpiders.com. And then you can find me on YouTube under Tom's Big Spiders. I've been trying to do that video a week thing, which has been great. We tried to do a feeding video yesterday, and it was an absolute debacle. Billy and I, when we get to, I can feed. It's when Billy and I get together with the camera. It's probably the lights. Actually, now that I think of it, it's most likely I got the lights on them. They're not, they get uh, stage fright or something, but they're not eating. But I think we tried to feed 20 yesterday and five of them ate. And this is why I don't do feeding videos. A, there's enough of them out there, but people really dig them. And so I like try to do one every once in a while. And I figured it'd be fun to do one. We just gotten a huge batch of crickets in. I'm like, let's do this. And I like for myctopus that were threat posturing. I had, 
you know, M. Kabolka, Bumba Kabolka, not M. Kabolka anymore, that basically ran from the cricket. And later on, I come back, she's got three of them in her mouth. It's like for crying out loud, guys. But anyway, that will do it for this one. Enough rambling on. I am going to finish my coffee and then I'm going to feed some tarantulas. And then I'm going to look for shelving for hopefully my new tarantula room soon. So as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time. And we'll catch you all next time.